The Camino de Santiago is a network of pilgrimage routes, typically beginning in France, but spent mostly traversing northern Spain for 500 or so miles. The proverbial finish line is at a shrine of the Apostle St. James in northwestern Spain, where legend holds that St. James' remains are buried. Countless people have made the trek going back to pre-Christian times when it served as a Roman trade route. Though it has been continually utilized for thousands of years, the Camino was reinvigorated in the mid-20th century with the publication of Walter Starkey's book, Road to Santiago, a revival strongly supported by the Spanish government. Since then, throngs of travelers have made the voyage, including more than 400,000 in 2022 alone. Andrew McCarthy is an actor, travel writer, director, and best-selling author who recently completed his second trip on the Camino, this time with his son Sam, who is on the verge of adulthood. McCarthy is sharing his experiences from this journey in the new book, Walking with Sam, a Father, a Son, and 500 Miles Across Spain. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Yeah, great, great. How are you? I'm doing very well. So I feel the need to maybe provide context for people who have never heard of this journey before. So before we get into some of the details of your experience on the Camino de Santiago the second time around, what exactly is the Camino de Santiago for anybody who has not heard of it before? Yeah, the Camino is uh, its an ancient pilgrimage route that began in the 8th century. It was an old Catholic route. It's, I mean, it still is, but it began as... Um, when the Catholic Church said the bones of the Apostle St. James had been found in the farther and westernmost reach of Spain, and anybody who marched there would get half their time in purgatory knocked off. But what it may really have been about was that Islam had taken over the taken over Spain and the Catholic Church wanted it back. So it said anybody who marches across Spain to get their soul purged while you're on your way, kick out those damn Moors. And so and the crusades started and all the bloody fights and everything. And so it was really like everything always is about real estate. Uh, so anyway, it's this ancient pilgrimage route that began in the 8th century that millions upon millions of people walked. And it, it began, of course, as a religious thing, but, you know, and it still is, like I said, but it very, I certainly didn't do it for that reason. And most people that I know don't either. They just need a good long walk. <laughs> but there's something, there's something about it. They, you know, there's a lot of history along the way, there are a lot of old churches and stories and legacy. That's That's an interesting part of it. And so this book tells the story of you sharing this walk with your son, Sam, as he is essentially entering adulthood. But this is not your first time to walk the Camino. You had done so a quarter century earlier. How did it affect you the first time around enough to want to try and share this with your late adolescent uh, adolescent son for a second time? Yeah, it was a real life changer for me the first time I did it. I was at... Uh kind of a turning point in my life, which I, I wasn't even really aware of at the time, but it really helped me find home in myself. It helped me ground myself in myself. You know, uh, I suppose the the main revelation I, I realized was uh, I had an experience about halfway through, I was walking through a field of wheat and suddenly I was on my knees sobbing and I didn't know why. And it, it, I had this sort of white light experience of realization of that, how how much fear had dominated my life and been so ever-present in my life that I was not even aware of its existence until that moment of its first absence when I was aware of it, you know, and that was a life-changer for me, life-changing. And fear is a funny thing, and it will, of course, keep seeping back, but nothing can have the power it has over you once you've identified it. 
you know, it begins to dissipate and, and lose its almighty grip. So that really changed my place in the world. And from that, I started traveling the world. I became a travel writer because of that moment. And, uh, and it always stayed with me. And I'd always kind of wanted to do the Camino again at some point, because I knew it could have such a profound effect on people. And I'm not the only one. Everyone I've ever met who's done it has said it's been a, a life-changing experience. And so my son was like, you know, about to leave home, as it were. And when I was 17, I left home. And that was the end of my relationship with my father. And I did not want that to be the case with my son. So I wanted to sort of transform our relationship to begin to, as opposed to parent-child, to having kind of two adults. And how does one do that? And since I had no template for it with my own dad, seeing ours just ended, uh, and I knew the Camino was such a grounding experience the first time, I thought maybe, uh, A, he would find it valuable for himself to sort of help locate himself in that, and that we could sort of discover who we were to each other in a real way, as opposed to some parent-child dynamic. And so you proposed this idea to him, and uh, he said, yeah, sure, that sounds cool, but never really gets to the point where he is forcing the issue, but as luck would have it, I think 18 months later, he suffers his first serious relationship breakup. So at that point, he's ready to get out of Dodge. So good luck to you guys <laughs> and your hopes for this journey, especially because he's dealing with a bit of an existential crisis for the first time in his life. Now, was there any concern that because you held that first trip in such high regard that the magic of that experience might wear off the second time around, that the the reality of the situation might be more uh, more obvious to you the second time you're going through this journey? I get I get that, but what I did know was that you can't deny the sheer uh, the attrition of where that wears you down when you're walking that kind of distance day after day after day after day. And you know, as Ben Hogan, the great golfer, used to say, the magic's in the dirt. You know, practice, practice. You know, just the walking, the walking, the walking. It'll wear you down and 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 rise you back up. You know, so I didn't. Uh, I knew that the magic, if you will, would happen if we just kept going, my trick at the beginning was to just make sure he didn't quit. <laughs> you know, the second day of the trip, he said, dad, what's the point of this effing walk? You know, and he didn't say effing, you know? So, and then by the time we got to Santiago, he said, uh, dad, that's the only 10 out of 10 thing I've ever done in my life. So I knew uh, the magic had happened to him. So I, I didn't particularly worry because I knew the sort of the Camino was bigger than the both of us. So at the end of day one, Sam asks you about uh, any regret that you may have of divorcing his mom, something that happened when he was pretty young. And uh, you provide some fascinating insight on how this is a topic that he would ask at various points in his life. But this one means a little something different because he had gone through that very first breakup. So you talk with him a little bit about it. You feel obligated to do so, to not try and deny him of anything or hide anything from him. And at the end of this explanation, he asks you if anyone is trustworthy. Is anyone mm. trustworthy, Andrew? Mm. You'd have to ask him. Uh, you know, you'd, we'd all like to think we are, right? And, you know, all you can do is when things happen, is try and clean up the mess and tell the truth, you know? And, and I hope... Uh, you know, Sam did say at one point to someone that he, what he got out of the trip was a, a trust of me. And I, I hadn't put those two things together uh, the way you just did there. So, uh, you know, we'd like to think we are, right? And that's something that has to be earned, as they say. So, and trust is a funny thing, and it's a fragile thing, and it's also a deeply strong thing. So, uh, I would like to think we are. 
you write that walking out of a city on the Camino is considerably more agreeable to the nervous system than walking into one. Why? <laughs> well, that is one of the interesting things, you know, because you're walking, you walk across the country and you walk from, because one day you're walking from a village of 19 to a city of 250,000 and walking out of that solitude and that peace and into the cacophony and chaos of a city, particularly the outskirts of a city are pretty unattractive and, you know, traffic and noise and people and, you know, and walking out is just a return to a certain peace and bliss that and then maybe that's just an indication of my age uh where the quiet is so appealing but there's also something very exciting about the thrill of arrival into a city you know and it's so interesting paradoxically the thrill of arrival and then the relief of departure you know and um those go hand in hand they're the opposite side of the same coin in many ways i think yeah, I found this myself from moving from where I was born and and raised and eventually did uh, growing up in, in young adulthood in Texas around the country, just how important it is to have the heightened senses that you do when you're someplace completely new, because you have no idea if you turn a corner, if it's going to be a, a positive or negative experience for you. And ultimately, you are trying to learn your way and doing so, I think it really does foster a, a sort of personal evolution at the same time. Well, there's something that's one of the great things about travel is that it just makes us awake in a certain way, keeps us awake. And there's no more kind of wonderful feeling than that, that being awake and just being present and like what's happening, what's around that corner. It's a thrilling kind of feeling. And then often travel elicits that sense of wonder. And there's and that sense of wonder is a return to innocence that we so are eager to we're so eager to leave it behind in youth and it's something that when we can rediscover it is really a, a, a blessing so that's the unknown is a great uh a great thing for uh our spirits i think you mentioned at the start of the trip sam is asking what the effort we're doing walking 500 miles by the end of the trip he rates it a 10 out of 10. So when and why did you observe Sam's attitude becoming more optimistic about this journey? Well, that's a good question. You know, it's, you know, it's, and what's interesting too is in life, just isn't like, you know, it's never a straight line. It's, you know, two steps up, three steps back, four steps up, one step back. You know, it's a constant push-pull. Um, you know, but there's one, but I think I mentioned in the book, there's one point when, Somebody says how far it is. And I go, yeah, if we make it. And Sam said, we'll make it. And I was like, I really heard that because two days before he'd said, where's the airport? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> something happened in him internally that was just like, you know, and it takes what it takes. And eventually when, when the penny drops, we're not always even aware that the penny has dropped, you know, and then suddenly something happens and we go, oh, I'm in, I'm in. Well, I don't even know when I, when I dropped in. And that's the relief that I experienced in that without even knowing prior to that, that I had such anxiety about it was, uh, was palpable. And I felt inter interestingly, I always felt like I, at the beginning and as a parent, you feel like you're carrying and leading and needing to protect the person you're with, in this case, my son. And then at a certain point, you're traveling together. And then at a certain point, he sort of goes beyond me, which is exactly the metaphor for raising children, right? You know, we lead them and protect them and then they walk side by side and then they go beyond us. And that's what we, that's what the goal as a parent, I think, is that our children succeed us in that way. So like when he walked at the end, you know, the trip ends in Santiago de Compostela, which is 50 miles from the sea. And a lot of pilgrims feel the, the pull to continue on to the sea. I didn't, I was going to make it Santiago and that was it. But Sam said, I'm going to walk to Finisterre, which is 
the name of the place at the sea. And so he walked beyond, you know, for three days beyond me. And I, the satisfaction I felt for him that he was sort of embarked then on his own on his, to get to the sea was, you know, I, I found that the low hanging fruit of that metaphor was too, too much to resist. Yeah, the part about parenting your children and eventually you hope that you are able to do a good enough job that they can adequately take care of themselves. That really resonated with me. I've got an eight and six year old at home right now. And not all moments are precious, unlike what the uh, cliche suggests. But uh, you also are trying really hard to uh, to create little humans that can not only problem solve, but also possess the ability to be present. And that is, seems so much more challenging now than it was even 5, 10, 15 years ago. So doing something where you're really stripping away, and I realize he had his phone the entire time, so you're not completely stripping away the technology, but really making it so much more about being in the here and now. I imagine that years from now, that's really going to benefit him as he thinks back to this experience too. Well, you touch on a lot of things there, you know, that about parenting, you know, you know, someone said it's all joy and no fun. You know, we look back at these moments and, oh, it's so wonderful. But, you know, this morning I was waiting for my nine-year-old to finish pooping so we could get out the door to school. And I'm like, come on, come on. You know, <laughs> no, this is not one of the greatest hits moment, you know. And, um, and so, yes, there are moments when the days are long. And someone said, you know, but I've loved all the ages they are. You know, people, I, I've loved when they were young. I love when they were teenagers. I love, you know. So, uh, but yes, the technology of it all is is obviously a worrisome thing for all of us. And it was interesting, our dealing with technology, because we didn't make a fast rule like, oh, we're getting back to simplicity, we'll get rid of our phones. They just naturally receded in importance as the longer we kept walking and getting into the moment in the, because all you're doing is walking, finding food, and finding a place to sleep. And finding food and finding a place to sleep are not difficult on the Camino. It's not like you're on the Appalachian Trail where you've got your whole world on your back and you've got to be, you know, responsible for everything. Here, all you're doing is walking. And, and the interesting thing about that is you're never bored. You may be exhausted and all sorts of things, but you're never bored because you're constantly just here now. And something really profound about that. And so naturally our devices sort of, you realize, we're, oh, I haven't looked at my phone in, since we've started walking today. You know what I mean? And they naturally sort of fell away and the present asserted itself in a way that was really, you know, satisfying. Yeah, that really does sound refreshing. Now, you started this conversation talking about that experience a quarter century earlier, including that outright meltdown where you were able to let go of that fear. That actually happened on a stretch of the Camino called the Meseta. So how did you fare with the Meseta this time around, Andrew? Yeah, the, the Meseta is this high, the high plains in the center of Spain. Uh, it's like a high desert and it's just fields of wheat for days on end. You know, you walk to the horizon, you see wheat and you walk to the horizon and you get over the crest and there's another field of wheat to the horizon <laughs> surrounding on all sides. And it's a pretty um, stark place and it's known to wreak havoc with the minds of pilgrims. I mean, it's where Don Quixote was most of the time when he was out tilting at windmills. He was in the southern Meseta. And so that kind of, I understand why he was screaming at windmills. Uh, this time, I, I kind of, Sam had a bit of a, a, a tough moment in the Meseta. Uh, but it's interesting. It just wreaks havoc with your mind, and it, and I, it starts to play with your mind, and you just got to keep going. You know, that's one of the things you get with age. And having done it before, I know I'll make it through. You'll make it through. And when you're young, you don't know you'll make it through. You know? And like the first time I walked, I didn't know I would make it through. Um, so... 
it, it's still a, it's still a tricky part of the walk for sure because you've been walking for a couple of weeks your body's tired and you hit this stretch it's brutally hot there's no shade there's no people there's no towns you're just out there it's just you and you and you come up against yourself you know and that's always a good thing and it's not always an easy thing and despite where you are on the camino the bicyclists are apparently as big a holes <laughs> as they are if, if you're uh, around on the city street too <laughs> <laughs> there's something about the entitlement of bicyclists it's just so like come on guys what are you doing and i really do i ranted about this in the book but i don't understand why bicyclists have to play dress up why do you need your spandex and your skin tight things you know i play basketball i don't put on a nick uniform to go shoot hoops i mean what's the deal you're, you're bicyclists you're not in the olympics you're not in the tour de france you don't have to wear your you know i i find it always that very funny but um i'll get a lot of hate mail from my bicycle friends about that but you know, yes, on the Camino, just like everywhere else, the bicyclists are entitled and feel they own the road. Yeah, it's fascinating to see a group that feels that entitlement towards not only the vehicles that they're around, but also the pedestrians, too. It's like there's got to be a little bit of a give and take here, guys. No, not to, no. <laughs> and also, it's like, you stay home. What are you, you're not doing walking the Camino. You're, you're finishing like five days. Get out of here, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I really appreciated... Uh, you really sharing some of your own personal unpacking of things. And not all of this happened on the Camino the first time around, but it was interesting to read that it wasn't until years later that you were able to appreciate the impacts that the movies that you starred in uh, had on young people at that time in the 1980s and 1990s. Was there some sort of epiphanous moment in this regard for you, Andrew? Well, I'd say the real sort of my being able to place those movies in that time and the Brat Pack and all that into some kind of proper perspective was when I wrote, I wrote several years ago, I wrote a memoir about uh, the, that, that time in my life. Um, and uh, that started me really thinking about it. And then I, I, um, I recently, when I finished that book, I kind of, I went, well, that was my experience, but I don't know what anybody else's experience was because mm -hmm. we were all kind of members of this club we didn't ask to join. And the Brad Pack now has come to be this kind of iconically affectionate term referring to a moment in pop culture looked back on with, you know, rose colored glasses. But it wasn't the case when it when it happened. You know, it was a very negative pejorative thing when the Brat Pack was sort of labeled. Who wants to be called a brat and who wants to be in some pack, you know, and it was adversely affected a lot of our careers. And so it took me years to realize that sort of it's become this beautiful thing in the sense that people look at me and other members of sort of the Brad Pack and made those movies. A certain generation will look at us with sort of, and their eyes glaze over and they go, oh, the Brad Pack, those movies, put in pink and they start talking. And I realize they're not talking to me anymore. They're talking to themselves and their own youth. And I represent that. I'm the avatar of their youth and of that moment when they're their life is a blank slate to be written upon. They're just cusping and blossoming. And it's a wondrous time in life. And, you know, to represent that and re remind people of that moment in themselves is, 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 I've come to realize is a great blessing, but it wasn't always the case. It took me a long time to, to realize that. And also it's interesting, I think, in, about those movies is we forget now, but that is when youth culture in pop culture really began. The movies before the mid early 80s were not about kids we're not about you young people they were about adults and all sorts of things and so 
Then somewhere in the right around 1980, Hollywood discovered, oh, my God, these kids go to the movies like six, seven times. Adults go once. Let's make movies for kids. And so they did. And I was in the right place at the right time. And it exploded in movies like filmmakers like John Hughes, who then suddenly took young people seriously and took their emotions seriously. And there's no more serious emotion than when you're a teenager everything is happening for the first time and it's profound and deep and you're the first to have ever felt love and the first to have ever felt heartbreak and you know john hughes knew to honor that mm -hmm. and so he took young people seriously in a way they hadn't been before uh, on screen anyway and but and and movie culture and certainly in a lot of tv cultures never recovered from that it's uh, movies are still about for an adolescent mentality all the Marvel movies and all that are still for adolescent mentality, but it wasn't always the case. And those movies were the beginning of that. John Hughes is obviously one of the all-time great storytellers in cinema, but you've proven yourself to be a very adept storyteller over time as well, through the travel writing, through the books that you've published too. In your eyes, what is the key to a good story? Well, it's knowing when um, what the truth is, knowing what story you want to tell, tell the truth, go, you know, reveal, because you want someone to, you know, you have to capture, you, you have to have also, you have to have sort of a macro view and a micro view. You have to have an overview and you have to have specific details to paint for people so they get it. But I think ultimately what you need to do is tap into a, an emotional truth hmm. because that's what's of interest, you know, and that's where people are going to invest and start nodding their heads going, yeah, that's how I feel. And, the, and this, the goal is so that then people don't feel alone anymore and they feel a connection. And if they feel a connection, they go, yeah, yeah, that's me. That's me. Those people saw Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink and said, that's me. That girl is me. That's what I feel. No one else has said that before. And they'll never forget that. You know, it's, it's creating that emotional connection. And you have to take an emotional chance to do that. And so, you know, but then you also, you know, then there's the technical things of telling story, of staying on point, not falling in love with your own digressions and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but I think the emotion is where it's really at. Because that's what's going to make that you crack that. That's how you're going to crack someone's heart open and make it memorable to them. Because people just want to feel less alone. They want to feel connected. But if they're in the movies, they're alone in the dark. Or if you're reading a book, you're alone in bed and you just want someone to go... See me. All we ever, all of us want to just be seen. See me, see me, particularly when we're young. And if you see someone else is sharing that same feeling and going, yes, this guy sees me, this, this person gets me. It's a great feeling. It's a great to be able to do that. One of my favorite paragraphs from this book is when you shared an understanding of the world that first became apparent on the Camino. So I'm going to read the paragraph for you now. The mere whims of mood can inform our experiences to such a degree as to make them all but unrecognizable compared to the experiences of others. In the morning, the steep hill might be an invigorating wake up, while in the weary afternoon, the same trudge could prove almost insurmountable. The surly waiter at lunch might be irritating, but in the satisfaction of the evening, I may find him amusing. Our internal caprices cr create our individual experiences as much or more than the country we cross or the people we encounter. Beautiful writing there, Andrew. And that is so important for so many different aspects of life. Yeah, I mean, that that really is, isn't it? Um, 
It's just true. It's, it's all perspective. It's all our perspective and how we look at things, you know, and so that, that's just a, there's some great liberation in that. And that also begs for us to be not just it begs for some self-awareness to so we're not just reacting to our own emotions, but have an awareness of what they are and why we're, you know, because we're just reacting. We're just ping ponging around, creating havoc with ourselves and people around us. But when, when we have some awareness um, and some detachment, I guess, from our investment in our, our own import, it it makes life a little easier for those around us. <laughs> yeah, that's so important in understanding with coexisting with others, too. Yeah. Even I mean, if you are disagreeing with them in a moment, you are hopefully trying to empathize with them enough to listen to why they believe the way that they do, or maybe better understand the journey of how they got to that point. Absolutely. And, you know, to go back to my son this morning in the bathroom, wouldn't come out of the bathroom. I'm fine waiting for him. But then suddenly I saw an email that I got bad news on and suddenly I was irritated. So I'm yelling at my son then to hurry up out of the bathroom. And it's not about him. That was about the thing that I got, which I didn't process well. So I then lashed out at him because I could because I'm the father and I could dominate his. And so I'd make his experience miserable. And it's not about him taking too long in the bathroom, although he was. It's about my reaction to this bad news that I got, you know, and we're doing that all the time. And if we can have some, and so it took me five minutes walking down the street to go, sorry, I shouldn't have yelled. I got some news that I didn't want to get. So it had nothing to do with you. And I'm sorry, you know, and he's like, oh, okay, that's cool. But, you know, we have to own own that stuff. You know, that's that's most of life is kind of cleaning up our side of the street, isn't it? There's <laughs> no doubt about that. Uh, what's your problem with sunflowers? <laughs> they freak me out, dude. <laughs> I find sunflowers really disturbing. I just find them just I don't know. I find them sinister in a way. And so like whenever somebody brings in sunflowers to the house, I'm like, oh, Jesus, sunflowers. I just find them really creepy and weird along the Camino. Uh, I think I mentioned in the book, somebody had plucked out like the seeds in the middle to make these weird faces with eyes and smiles. I'm like, oh my God, this is freaking me out. And in parts of the Camino, there are fields of, as far as you can see, of just sunflowers sort of pointing at you and sort of mocking you. I, I Yeah, they disturb me. There's a very common saying on the Camino. There are a bunch of common sayings on the Camino, but one common saying is the Camino provides. What is a moment where the Camino did that for you and or Sam? Huh. Boy, that's a good one. Um, it just did everywhere along the way, you know? I mean, um, literally it just provides, you know, you turn a corner and suddenly there's a cafe when you need it and you're like, oh, thank God. But there are other times when what it provides is like nothing for you. It provides nothing because you don't you need to deal with whatever it is you've got going on in your head. And so there's nothing. And so it provides in that way, you know, and it will reward you at the end of the day because, you know, you will get there. But um, I wish I had a great example of that for you. Um, and, I, and I don't. But I always you always feel somehow in good hands when you're in the Camino in the sense that and you are very much in the Camino's hands. You know, and it, it it is a notion of trusting that it's going to work out, I suppose, like in life, too. But you, you feel very much in the sense that you are a part of something bigger. It's one of the interesting things about pilgrimage routes is that there's no nothing to be discovered. There's nothing. Millions of people for centuries have walked the same route. So there's nothing exterior that's going to be discovered. All the discovery is internal and it will support you as you do that.
considering how much of a soul cleansing journey this is for the individual and just the collective group of people that have been making this walk going back to pre-Christian times, how difficult of a mental readjustment is it getting back into your day-to-day life after you're done with this walk? Yeah, that's always, it's always difficult and disappointing, isn't it? You know, the arrival in Santiago too is so you're thrilled to be done physically. You're, you're, you're proud you made it. You're relieved it's over. There's a deep kind of like, wow, it's over. There's something that was so satisfying. And, you know, like particularly with my son walking it, I was just like, we'll never have this time again. I know we could walk it again and maybe we will. We've talked about it, but it'll never be that again. You know, and there was something, the mixed feelings is one of the things you learn to deal with is once you get older, you know, to reconcile mixed feelings and to have mutually exclusive feelings coexisting and that being okay but yeah coming home it's always been it's like any great journey you can show people pictures and tell them stories but they can never understand the experience and you're sort of alone in that in a very real way and you're alone even walking next to sam his camino is very different than mine you know you can walk the same territory step for step and yet have an entirely different experience you know and that's life isn't it um so yeah it's always it's always a bit of a and you feel like, oh, it's all slipping away. But, you know, stuff remains and goes deep. And particularly with the Camino, you know, the gifts of the Camino keep giving for years afterward, in my experience, the first time and this time. And they emerge at a walking pace. You know, it takes a while for them to rise up. And the beauty of things that take so long to sort of rise up is they're legit and they're real and you own them. You know, it's not some kind of thing that happened and, you know, it kind of burns away. You know, I began to feel at home in myself the first time after I walked that Camino. And that's never been shaken. He is Andrew McCarthy. The new book is Walking with Sam. It is an excellent, excellent read. Andrew, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Uh, Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Thank you.